Well, the first thing I think of is crooked Hillary Clinton when during one of the debates she asked whether or not I would leave office, would I accept the results of the election? And I gave her a decent answer, and I go by the election. Now, with that being said, I have to tell you that if you go with this universal mail-in where you send millions of votes in California, tens of millions of ballots being sent to everybody and their dogs, okay? Right. The dogs are getting them, okay? You're never going to have a fair election. Right. I say this. You're never going to have a fair election. Uh-huh. My dog didn't get a ballot. Is that dog suppression? What's going on here? That's why. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle From with Pacifica you. From Pacifica Radio in Los and Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego. 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. Seattle's KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF, where, I don't know, is it sweltering as much uh, in all of those stations as it is here in Los Angeles? Hope not. Also streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the world-famous Bradcast. Glad to have you here very quickly uh, because we've got a big show today. With a guest that I uh, have really been looking forward to talking to, uh, joining us momentarily. Uh, I think I'm looking forward to talking to him. Uh, in any event, a quick thanks to uh, Nicole Sandler, the Nicole Sandler Show, for filling in for us on Friday's broadcast with a very smart interview with what uh, What's the Matter with Kansas author Thomas Frank on his new book, The People Know. A Brief History of Anti-Populism. You can download that show uh, with a full interview uh, with Nicole and uh, Thomas Frank, if you missed it, for free at bradblog.com. Thanks to those of you who support our work at bradblog.com slash donate. Washington Post reports this morning that as the two major political parties prepare to open their national conventions, the race for the White House tilts towards the Democrats, with former Vice President Joe Biden holding a double-digit lead nationally. 
over President Trump amid continuing disapproval of the president's handling of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, that, according to a Washington Post-ABC News poll. Democrats, they note, kick off their convention on Monday night in a mood of what they describe as cautious optimism, with Biden and his running mate, Senator Kamala Harris, leading Trump and vice president by uh, 53% to 41%, or 12 points, 12 points, Biden and Harris over Trump and Pence, among registered voters. The findings are identical among a larger sample of all voting age adults. And again, those are national numbers. His uh, current national margin over Trump among voters is slightly smaller, however, than the 15-point margin that he had in a poll taken last month, but slightly larger than a survey in May when he led by 10 points. In late March, as the pandemic was taking hold in the U.S., Biden and Trump were separated by just two points, with the former vice president holding a statistically insignificant advantage at that point. Today, Biden and Harris lead by 54 to 43 percent, or 11 points, among those who say they are absolutely certain to vote and who also report voting back in 2016. A few months ago, Biden's lead of 15 points overall had narrowed to seven points among that group of committed 2016 voters. Biden now also leads by low double digits among those who say they are following the election most closely. But the president's supporters are much more eager than are Biden's to cast ballots for him this year, with nearly 9 in 10 calling themselves enthusiastic, 65% of them saying they are very enthusiastic. Slightly, On the other hand, slightly more than 8 in 10 Biden supporters say they are enthusiastic about voting for him, with only 48% of Biden voters saying they are, quote, very enthusiastic. The motivations of the Trump and Biden supporters remain starkly different with the president motivating both of the groups. Almost three in four who support Trump say they are casting an affirmative vote for the president rather than to oppose Biden. Among those backing Biden, however, nearly six in 10 say they are voting mainly to oppose Donald Trump rather than mainly to support the presumptive Democratic nominee. Now, those uh, numbers <clears throat> sound uh, more good in any event than bad for Joe Biden, though they are narrowing. And uh, as is always the case, they get closer and tighter the closer that Election Day gets which is 78 days from today, but who's counting? And uh, other polling out this weekend finds the race already narrowing quite a bit more. As CNN reports today that Joe Biden's lead over Donald Trump among registered voters has significantly narrowed since June, according to a new CNN poll. Even as the former vice president maintains an advantage over the president on several top issues and his choice of California Senator Kamala Harris as a running mate earns largely positive reviews. And on the eve of the party's conventions, a majority of voters, 53 percent, are extremely enthusiastic about voting in this year's election. That's a new high in CNN polling in presidential election cycles going back to 2003. Overall, 
50% of registered voters, according to CNN, back the Biden-Harris ticket, while 46% say that they support Trump and Pence. In other words, that's just a four-point lead now for Biden and Harris over Trump and Pence, right at the poll's margin of error, which is plus or minus four percentage points. In other words, one could view CNN's poll as a statistical tie among Biden and Trump right now nationally. By way of contrast, in June, the same poll found Biden over Trump uh, 55 to 41 or 14 percent, 14 points back in June. So, yes, uh, Joe Biden just saw at least according to CNN, a 10-point drop over the past month or two. And that should be uh, taken with some bit of concern from the Biden camp. That said, we have cautioned for many, many months on the broadcast that the national polling numbers are almost meaningless. As we don't run national elections in this country, we run state-by-state elections. And where Biden is also leading in key battleground states, those numbers are also narrowing as we get closer to Election Day. But another reason that I have cautioned you on this program uh, day in and day out to ignore the polls, both national and swing state polling, is because all of this comes amidst a political atmosphere like No one has ever seen before in this country, at least not for more than 150 years or so, if then. And all of that is true, even before you factor in the covid pandemic into the picture and the and the unknowns that will now occur around record vote by mail balloting and a president with unpredictable authoritarian tendencies and the proven interest in using His uh, powers, his uh, very powerful uh, powers as president to use them lawfully or otherwise. In other words, nothing, nothing should be taken for granted between here and Election Day, whether you're in a swing state or not in a swing state. Or even beyond Election Day, when the winner of this year's unprecedented presidential contest is likely to be determined. Yes, after Election Day, not on election night, as uh, we have been uh, so used to for so many years in this country. In fact, it may be perhaps well beyond Election Day uh, that we uh, finally learn who will be the next president. That, according to a fascinating and, yes, often terrifying tabletop exercise or war game exercises that were uh, recently gamed out by the Transition Integrity Project. The Transition Integrity Project was organized, according to the group, in late 2019 out of a concern that the Trump administration may seek to manipulate, ignore, undermine, or disrupt the 2020 presidential election and the transition process. Uh, TIP, as they call themselves, or TIP, they take no position on how Americans should cast their votes or on the likely winner of the upcoming election. Either major party candidate, they note, could prevail at the polls this November without resorting to dirty tricks. However, the appropriate, they appropriately observe that the administration of President Donald Trump has steadily undermined core norms of democracy and the rule of law and embraced numerous corrupt and authoritarian practices. This, they say, presents a profound challenge for those from either party who are committed to ensuring free and fair elections. 
and the peaceful transition of power and stable administrative continuity in the U.S. In June, the project convened a bipartisan group of over 100 current and former senior government and campaign leaders and other experts in a series of 2020 election crisis scenario planning exercises. The results of all four tabletop exercises, they say, were alarming. That's their word, not mine. Their report on this notes that uh, we assess with a high degree of likelihood that November's election will be marked by a chaotic legal and political landscape. Well, I could have told them that without any exercises. But they add, we also assess that the uh, President Trump is likely to contest the result by both legal and extra legal means in an attempt to hold on to power. The group organized four scenario exercises to identify risks to the rule of law or to the integrity of the democratic process during the period from Election Day on November 3rd through Inauguration Day on January 20, 2021, with an eye toward mitigation and or prevention of worst case outcomes. Each of the scenarios developed, they say, was different. In one scenario, the exercise posited that the winner of the election was not known as of the morning after the election, and the outcome of the race was too close to predict with certainty. In another scenario they looked at, the exercise began with the premise that Democratic Party candidate Joe Biden won the popular vote and and the Electoral College margin, uh, the Electoral College by a healthy margin. In a third scenario, the exercise assumed that President Trump won the Electoral College vote, but again lost the popular vote by a healthy margin, as was the case in 2016, before he possessed control of the awesome powers of the presidency. The fourth exercise began with the premise that Biden won both the popular vote and the Electoral College by a narrow margin. Teams were assigned to play the Trump campaign and the Biden campaign. Democratic and Republican elected officials participated. The media participated. The judiciary, members of the executive branches of government. A group of more than 100 people in all participated. They were recruited from across the political spectrum. They included a Democratic former governor of a swing state. That was Jennifer Granholm of uh, Michigan. A former RNC chairman, that would be Michael Steele. A Democratic former president, chief of staff, that would be John Podesta. David Frum, the Republican former presidential speechwriter. A former Democratic head of the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice. As well as many senior political operatives, former government officials, and members of the media. All of our scenarios, according to TIP co-founder and former Defense Department official and Georgetown law professor Rosa Brooks, all of our scenarios, she told Fox News, all of them ended in both street-level violence and political impasse. She added the law is essentially, it's almost helpless, she said, against a president who's willing to ignore it. Now, she told that to Fox News, which actually plays a key role in most of the scenarios that these folks looked at. Writing at the American Interest recently, Nils Gilman, another co-founder of the group, warned wargaming shows that short of a landslide victory for Joe Biden in the upcoming elections, 
we may be headed for a severe constitutional crisis. See, told you I was concerned about this today. But uh, Gilman also notes that uh, although much attention has rightly been given to the importance of safeguarding the physical integrity of the vote in this year's election, less attention has been paid to the possibilities for serious disruptions to the political and administrative transition between Election Day on November 3rd and Inauguration Day on January 20. And that's true. We've paid a lot of attention to a safeguarding the physical integrity of the vote. But as far as the political disruptions, the administrative disruptions that could occur, well, we haven't talked about that as much. Gilman goes on to say, while there are indeed grave causes for concern about what could happen during these 11 weeks between Election Day and Inauguration Day, there are also many opportunities to mitigate the worst possible outcomes if And it's a big if, if those committed to the democratic process begin to plan and act now. Gilman explains in his cautionary report at the American Interest, quote, the bad news in each scenario, other than a Biden landslide, we ended up with a constitutional crisis that lasted until the inauguration, featuring violence in the streets and a severely disrupted administrative transition. The good news, yes, he says there is good news, we also learned a great deal about how to prevent the worst from transpiring. Before he then goes on to detail six major takeaways that could help to mitigate the worst of what could happen from Election Day until Inauguration Day. Here to discuss both the good and bad news, I suspect, is Dr. Nils Gilman. He is an historian a uh, vice president of programs at Berggruen Institute and uh, co-founder of the Transition Integrity Project itself, whose recent work has frankly kept me awake for too many nights in recent days. Dr. Gilman, welcome, I think, to the broadcast, sir. Brad, thank you for having me on. Really appreciate you joining us. Really appreciate the work that you guys are doing. By the way, do you call it the Transition Integrity Project? Do you call it TIP or TIP? We call it TIP. All right. Thank you. Well, that's what I will do as well. All right. Well, your group assessed that the closest analogy to what we may be looking at after the uh, uh, 2020 election may be the election of 1876. You had to go back that far to find anything even close to what you guys expect. This was during the Reconstruction era after the Civil War. You describe uh, your report describes uh, that time as a time of extreme partisanship and rampant disenfranchisement. What happened in 1876 that uh, reminds you or, I guess, worries you about what could happen this year, Nils? Yeah, that's a great question, Brad. Um, and maybe this shows the value of actually learning a little bit of American history. Oh, yeah. The election of 1876 might be the most important election in the history of this country. I mean, people always say this election is the most important election. But mm-hmm. the election of 1876 has a good, can- a good case to make for it. Because what happened in 1876 was the Civil War ended uh, 11 years earlier in 1865. and. Mm-hmm. And uh, the North, uh, the Northern troops were occupying the Southern states and engaged in this process of reconstruction and trying to ensure that African Americans would have their civil rights, their voting rights, and so on. And in 1876, President Grant was stepping down uh, after two terms, and there was an election between uh, Sam Tilden, uh, who represented the uh, Democratic Party, and uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, who represented the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And uh, what ended up happening that year was that there were three states where the results of the vote itself, of the popular vote, 
um, was contested. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that was uh, Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina. Yep. What ended up happening is you had a situation where there was a Democratic, uh, uh, Democrats were controlling uh, the state house, and Republicans were controlling the uh, the um, the governorship, mm-hmm. and they ended up sending competing slates of electors to the electoral college. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. so this is a, a has to do with a mechanism of our or we don't directly elect the president. We don't even directly elect the representatives who are going to go to the Electoral College. These are we vote for th- for the party we prefer. Mm-hmm. And then a slate of electors is sent on to the Electoral College. Those slate of electors are affirmed mm-hmm. um, or not mm-hmm. in mid-December. And they're sent on to Congress. Congress can then accept those electoral votes or not as they tally all the electoral votes from all the co- from all the different states. It's only at that point, on January 6, 2021, in this case, that um, the decision about who's actually president will be finally made. Now, in 1876, there, was, there, were, there were competing slates of electors, and they were not able to adjudicate whether it should be the, Democrats, the Democratic slate of electors that was in favor of Tilden mm-hmm. or the Republican slate of electors that was in favor of Rutherford B. Hayes. And it went down literally to the wire. They were looking like on the day before the inauguration, which was in early March that year, uh, that there might be competing uh, inaugurations from the oh, two candidates. Man. And uh, President Grant was actually planning on calling out the troops to stop Tilden from doing it. And that's part of what led to, uh, you know, Tilden finally engaging in a compromise. He said, okay, look, I'll let you, uh, you know, win, Brotherford B. Hayes, win the election, mm-hmm. win it by one electoral vote, as it turned out, the closest uh, ever mar- uh, margin in the Electoral College. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Republicans will get to hang on to the... Uh, hang on to the White House. Mm-hmm. But the price he exacted was the end of Reconstruction. And what we know was that the result of that was the Northern troops pulled out of the South. In the South, uh, you know, the white people retook control of the political apparatus and posed Jim Crow that lasted for nearly another hundred years with consequences that uh, continue to resonate in our politics down to the present day. Down to today. Yeah, because of what happened after 1876, uh, Jim Crow and so much of the voter suppression that we're seeing right now all comes from that a hundred years ago when they could not agree on the Electoral College slate, which is one of the things we've been talking about on this show. We had uh, uh, former Colorado Senator Tim Worth on this show a few weeks ago. He was talking about how uh, Donald Trump has access to these extraordinary presidents presidential powers that could be put in place after the election to stop the counting of ballots. You could get into a situation where you have, again, like you uh, describe in 1876, Nils, where uh, the, the the legislature of the uh, of the various states wants one slate of electors, the governor wants another, the voters want another. Uh, it's it, The reason I asked about that is because that seems like a very serious Potential possibility, something along those lines uh, that could happen, at least according to uh, the, the the war games, the tabletop exercises that you guys played out. Before we get into some of the details of those exercises uh, and what you found uh, can be done about uh, all of this, what was the hope? What, what was the purpose of an exercise like this um, other than just to scare the hell out of me? <laughs> Well, first of all, I thought you did a really nice job summarizing what we were up to. Thank you. You know, when we first started discussing this, uh, it was late last year in the fall of 2019. A lot of the concerns we had at that time really were about what would happen from an administrative continuity perspective. You know, we have this peculiar system in America where there's an election, uh, you know, in, in, in early November, and then it's usually 10 or 11 weeks before we get to January 20th. And the idea is, in principle, is that there should be a, a smooth 
transition of power. So, for mm-hmm. example, when, you know, and that should happen even if there's parties switching between parties, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, when Obama won in 2008 over John McCain, obviously George Bush uh, and his administration weren't particularly enthusiastic about handing over power to the Democrats, but by all reports, the uh, you know, the Bush team mm-hmm. across all the different administrative agencies, the Department of Defense and Commerce and the EPA and the, fin- you know, and the Treasury Department, which was dealing with a financial crisis. All of these uh, department leaders prepared briefing memos so that there could be continuity in the administrative handoffs so that as Obama took over control and the Obama team took over control of various administrative agencies, they'd be able to hit the ground running and actually be able to, you know, keep the government doing the things that we all as citizens expect the government to do. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when Trump came in in 2016, again, Obama wasn't too happy about having to, you know, hand over power to the other party, but he, again, his team prepared a bunch of memos. And in many cases, the Trump team, which was in its own chaotic process of not knowing how to do a transition, didn't even show up to the briefings that were being prepared to help them do their job. <laughs> the concern that we originally had was, if they weren't even going to show up to the briefings that are there to help them do their jobs, are they going to willingly hand over, you know, go through the process of you know, making it easier for mm. Team Biden to manage the administrative process mm-hmm. starting in 2021? We were skeptical that, you know, they would be interested in doing it or maybe that they would even be capable of doing it. So that's really where we started out uh, talking about, you know, what could happen in those weeks in between. Mm. And what would happen if the, Bush, if, the, excuse me, if the Trump team didn't do a good job along the way? You know, already it's certain that if, if Biden manages to win, um, he's going to be ha- handed an inbox from hell, right? There's going to be <laughs> yes. probably 15% unemployment. There's going to be an ongoing pandemic. Um, there's going to be, you know, a lot of social contestation in the country. You would like him at least to be handed a, a, a functional bureaucracy, but we weren't convinced that that was actually going to take place. So that was really what motivated originally. And we decided to set up a series of exercises that could explore the different things that might happen uh, to, to disrupt the administrative process. But what we learned in that process was it wasn't just the administrative process that could potentially be disrupted. It was potentially the electoral transition itself yeah. that was subject to disruption. Yeah, that's what I was interested Actually, I mean, you get to the, uh, and, and you detail a, a very disturbing scenario of how this transition would occur in the event that uh, Joe Biden wins, that uh, Trump acknowledges his win. All of the things that could happen, uh, you know, from him pardoning himself to destroying documents to uh, all sorts of uh, to enriching himself to all sorts of things that could go terribly wrong. And they are disturbing, but I'm not even interested yet in that part because there's all of this, uh, you know, chaos that could go on even before we get to such a point where he acknowledges that. Um, And you in your uh, 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 report uh, talk about uh, the fact that the risks can be mitigated for what could happen as of Election Day before we even get to the Electoral College part of this. You say the worst outcomes of the exercise are far from certain. The purpose of this report is not to frighten. Well, you may have failed there, Nils, but uh, to spur all stakeholders to action. Our legal rules and political norms don't work unless people are prepared to defend them and to speak out when others violate them. It is incumbent upon elected officials, civil society leaders and the press 
to challenge authoritarian actions in the courts, in the media, and in the streets through peaceful protest. Now, as I say, your report certainly frightened me, and uh, even and even before that, uh, I've, I've never been more concerned, frankly, about an election in my 20 years of covering this stuff nearly uh, as I am right now. So even before reading your report, I was uh, very concerned. But um, has the media covered your report. You cite in all of the scenarios, really, the media's role in helping to mitigate the worst potential outcomes. Has the media covered your report and its findings enough so that the exercise actually accomplishes uh, its purposes? Well, we've got we've got a certain amount of media attention. I, you know, one would always like more. But, you know, being on a show like yours, I appreciate you inviting inviting us on and publicizing the report. You know, there's gotten quite a bit of coverage. Uh, what's interesting is there's been quite a bit of coverage from across the political spectrum. Fox News, you mentioned the Fox News report mm-hmm. interviewing my co-founder, Rosa Brooks. I thought they did a pretty, uh, if, you dare, if I dare say so, fair and balanced job in reporting <laughs> it there. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, the media is going to have a huge role in this because, in order, see, you know, you, you, you started with a clip from Donald Trump this morning talking about whether he'd necessarily accept the... Uh, accept the election. And the first thing he did was say, well, Hillary didn't accept the results of the election in 2016. So whatever. Mm-hmm. The question is not acceptance, right, um, of the mental state of, you know, Hillary in 2016 or Trump this fall when they, you know, lose the vote. The question is what they actually do in response to that. Mm-hmm. And there was a little bit of, you know, discussion about whether Hillary would try to get, you know, electors to defect. And you know, there was some silly season stuff that was discussed like that mm-hmm. in the fall of 2016. But the difference is that this time, the guy who might be potentially in that position is the president of the United States, which Hillary was not in yep. 2016. Um, you know, Obama was not willing to play any of those games on Hillary's behalf in 2016. Mm-hmm. But Donald Trump is in a position where he could do this. And what we learned from this process of running these, you know, these scenario exercises is that a president of the United States who is unbounded by norms and uninhibited by his own party has an incredible number of things he can do. Now, I'll leave it up to your listeners to decide whether they think that that's a realistic description of this current president. But, you know, the truth is, if you have a president who's in a condition like that, where he doesn't care about whether, you know, we're going to, you know, have respect for the basic integrity of the electoral process, we're going to let that play out naturally, and we don't have a political party that's going to say no to a president who's going to try to cut those things off, then you're in a situation where a whole bunch of things become possible that are really outside the experience of anything we've had in our democracy in the last 250 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you note, uh, your report notes, that a determined campaign has the opportunity to contest the election all the way until 20, January 2021. You find uh, President Trump, the incumbent, will very likely use the executive branch to aid his campaign strategy, including through the, uh, the Department of Justice. Uh, We assess uh, that there is a chance the president will attempt to convince legislatures and or governors to take actions, including illegal actions, to defy the popular vote. Well, what type of illegal actions would he press for? Uh, And did your group find that those governors would actually take those actions? Because... You know, uh, I'm not uh, one of the, uh, the the top uh, former officials that you had on your uh, on your panel, but I think they would. I think they would do this for this president, uh, even out even without knowing what those particular uh, uh, illegal actions are. Well, 
we can talk about the actions in a second, but I want to go back in answering your question to something you mentioned earlier, which is the role of the media and the role of Fox News, I think, mm-hmm. is perhaps the single most important media organization for this purpose. Mm-hmm. One thing that's certain, and this certainly came out in the, in the games that we played, is that there's going to be an incredible amount of noise about uh, electoral interference by the Russians, by the Chinese. There's going to be anecdotes about individual polling stations. We have, you know, 6,000 precincts across the country or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And are there, going to be a, are there going to be 10 of those 6,000 that have some irregularities to go on? Almost certainly that happens every year, right? Um, and the question is then going to be, do those particular anecdotes become something that the media picks up as a narrative that allows them to establish a basis and establish the political leaders, Trump and Biden in this case, to establish a basis for contesting what appear to be the, le- the legitimate results of the vote. And if they can get a media narrative to stick, then it becomes much more politically possible to engage in, I would call, extra-legal modes of contestation. So one thing, for example, that Trump is actually is actively signaling that he wants to do mm-hmm. is he's going to want to have the election called, at least in all the states he's leading in, mm-hmm. on election night. Right. This is despite the fact that we're going to see an enormous amount of voting by mail this year, um, and that many of those votes are going to take days or maybe even weeks to fully count. So one of the things, this is one of the takeaways from our report, is that we need to teach the American people, and I think it's incumbent on the media to sort of pound this message home over the next uh, 10, 11 weeks before the election, is that we're not going to have just an election day where the results are known. We're going to have an election season. It, mm-hmm. may, be, you know, it may be well into November, maybe even late November at Thanksgiving time, before we really know what the full final vote tallies are in all these precincts across the country. Yep. And we need to be patient about letting the process play out. Um, but the point is, the Trump administration can potentially do all sorts of things. They can say they can try to have the DOJ seize ballots yep. um, that are being, being voted in. They can yank the uh, Secret Service protections that uh, the Biden team has, because they say, well, he already lost, right? Since he lost, he doesn't need those things anymore. Mm -hmm. They can stop agreeing to cooperate with the administrative transition process and say, oh, well, you know, we don't have to prepare these briefings because, you know, we're not having an administrative transition, right? And so on and so forth. There's all these different things that can be done simply because the president controls the executive branch of government. And if he wants to create the impression, the facts on the ground, as they say in the Middle East, that established that he has one and he's maintaining control, he might be able to get away with it if the media takes his story seriously. And, and, you know, and we saw this. We saw this before. Uh, if those of us who are old enough to remember what happened in 2000, it sounds like the exact same thing, where uh, the media sort of plays along with whoever declares the narrative, whoever draws it out. And you uh, you, you advise uh, your group advises political leaders to approach this as a political battle, not just a legal battle. And I know that Republicans understand that because that's how they approached 2000. That's how they approach everything. But do you get any sense that Democrats, either uh, those taking part in your exercise or those that you have been talking uh, to since, that you've heard from since, do they understand what that means, uh, if even I understand what it means? In other words, if if uh, Donald Trump says, well, I'm uh, removing your Secret Service because you've lost the election, he's not uh, making a, a legal contest. He's taking a political action uh, and actually declaring a, a, a political war of sorts. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, the, the question in all these things is do people follow those orders? 
Service, right? I mean, does the Secret Service agree mm-hmm. uh, at that point to say, uh, you know, will or do they say actually, you know, maybe we don't know yet, and we're going to continue to protect, you know, former Vice President Biden and 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 uh, Senator Harris under the normal procedures, right? So, you know, and I, I do think that the media does have an important role to play in, you know, counseling patients. I mean, I. I should say I'm not connected to either campaign. I'm, I work mm-hmm. for a nonpartisan nonprofit based in downtown Los Angeles, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, so I don't know what the Biden campaign or the Trump campaign may be thinking about. Um, I do think that part of what's happened with the coverage of the Transition Integrity Project in the media is there's certainly been a ton of discussion about these things, and I would hope that you know senior leaders in those campaigns would be taking these these questions seriously. But the plea I would make would be not really to either campaign, but really to you know patriots and people who particularly people in the government who have taken an oath of office to defend the Constitution, that there's some basic principles, which I don't think are partisan at all, which is that first, every American citizen that wants to vote should be enabled, should be enabled to do so mm-hmm. as easily and safely as possible. And second of all, that every one of those votes should be counted properly. Um, I don't think that those are partisan positions. I think those are positions that, you know, everybody who believes in the process of democracy ought to be able to sign up for. And you know, what's happening, I think, at a lot of state levels, because a lot of this plays out at really, you know, a state-by-state level and mm-hmm. really even a precinct-by-precinct level, is what are the legal possibilities and are we going to allow those legal traps to be played? So let me just give you a sense of why what we saw in Florida in 2000 mm-hmm. is the tip of the iceberg of what we might see this fall. Okay. So in Florida in 2000, you know, it was very, very close vote across the whole state. And initially, Gore only wanted the recount to happen in the four counties where he knew that there tend to be more Democratic votes. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was the first thing that the Bush administration, the, uh, the, the Bush team tried to contest. They said, well, no, it shouldn't just be the Democratic leaning counties. It should be all the counties. Mm-hmm. And then it should be no counties. And then essentially they ran out the clock and went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, yeah, the clock is over. We're just going to go with the vote as it's already been counted. Right? Right. That's basically what played out in Florida in 2000. Yep. This time around, 20 years later, the degree of granularity that the campaigns know about the kinds of votes that have been cast is you know, way, way, way more detailed than they knew in 2000. So what the campaigns are going to know this year is they're going to know exactly how many votes were cast in each precinct. They're also going to know who cast provisional ballots and or absentee slash vote by mail ballots. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to be able to pre- they're going to be able potentially to make their legal strategies granular down to the precinct by precinct level. I want these people on this side of town to get counted and not these precincts on this side of town to get counted. Uh, you know, and the, there could be like literally thousands and thousands of lawsuits at a, you know, voting precinct by voting precinct level to decide which votes are going to be counted. Mm-hmm. That's me. If we engage in a process like that, that's a shame on our democracy. Yeah. Our democracy should be fundamentally about enabling everybody to vote and about having all votes, vote, votes be counted. And if it takes a couple of weeks for that to happen, so be it. The new president doesn't have to come in until January 20th anyway. Well, yeah, I know, and I agree with you. I'm not sure, of course, uh, if if Donald Trump is the one who needs to stop the voting because way more Republicans are going to vote on Election Day uh, and way more Democrats are going to vote on uh, a vote by mail. I'm sure he would be happy to make that uh, you know claim that we need to stop this. I don't think Joe Biden would do that. And one of the interesting uh, parts of your all of your scenarios, you found time and again, it was the person who sort of acted first, who took the first action, who ended up... Uh, 
having an advantage. I want to talk. I, w- I need to get to a break here, Nils, uh, and I, I'm going to talk about that a little bit with you when we come back. But uh, since you raised the point of vote counting and counting every vote and the idea that that should not be partisan, well, I got news for you. It is because I've been fighting to count every vote for so many years. I'm constantly called a partisan, generally by whichever party, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, do not want to have all of the votes counted at that point. But you make a very important point that I greatly appreciated in your report, uh, noting that it is uh, not just important that we have an accurate vote count, but it's important that the public has confidence in that count. Uh, uh, Nils Gilman, I have uh, been making that case in detail, perhaps louder than anyone in this country for uh, going on, like I said, about 20 years now. And elected and election officials of both parties have moved in the opposite direction, making it harder for the public to know, you know, using computers to count their vote, uh, 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 direct recording electronic machines that have no uh, record, no paper uh, trail at all. Um making it harder and harder for the public to know that the election was not only counted, but counted accurately. Do you see any evidence that elected officials or election officials understand this suddenly now? Because I don't. And I'm very worried that uh, there are a, a million ways to obscure the results so that the public may not have confidence, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, uh, whoever whoever is most affected by this. Well, I do think there's been a wake-up call, especially, you know, because of what we saw with the, you know, attempted Russian interference in the elections. Um, It's not clear how much effect that had in 2016, but certainly they were trying. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there's been quite a bit of effort to sort of secure the, the physical integrity of voting machines. But you're absolutely right that. But that um, does nothing to, to to convince the public that the results are accurate. If they can't oversee the process, there's no way for them to know. Right. I mean, I agree with you. I think that what we should do is we should have paper ballots. Um, paper ballots are easy to audit, easy to recount. I think moving towards electronic balloting was one of those things that seemed like a good idea at the time, but I think in retrospect seems like a big mistake. Um, voting by mail, one big advantage of that is, you know, it definitely creates a paper trail. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some countries like Australia that do all their voting by mail. It's the only way that voting happens. So it's definitely one of the, it can be one of the most secure methods of voting uh, that you can have out there. I do think that the fact that there's been, you know, unfortunately, even asking the question you're asking, Brad, contributes to the doubts people have about the integrity of the process. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you shouldn't ask that question because, I, you know, if there are questions, they should be asked. But the problem is that we can't answer them in an absolute affirmative way that will give people the confidence that we all want the election to have. Because the the truth is, we want the person who's going to be the president next time to have the confidence in the country that he was legitimately elected to be the president. Right. Right. Even if you disagree with it. Right, I mean, but you also you know, want... Like, no, wins, but he won legitimately. Right, and you also want the loser, whether it's uh, uh, Trump's supporters or Biden's supporters, to know that uh, they lost fair and square. And, I, you know, I, I, hey, you, you guys were the ones who brought it up about the importance that the public has confidence in the actual count. Nils, let me take a quick break here. Are you able to stick around for a little bit and a- answer some more questions on this? Would love to. Oh, great. Thank you. And we may even open up the phones if we have time. I know I got a lot of my own questions to ask, but uh, maybe we'll try to open the uh, open up the phones. 818-985-5735 is our phone number. That's 818-985-KPFK. Speaking with Nils Gilman, we'll take a quick break. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. <laughs> Thank you.
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. We may have to be taking it to the streets. Hope you're ready. Hope you got some good uh, marching shoes. Good to go. We may need them. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. In late July, George W. Bush's former speechwriter and advisor, David Frum, one of the participants in the Transition Integrity Project's War Games scenario of possible outcomes of the 2020 election, wrote at The Atlantic, uh, quote, on the same morning that the U.S. government reported the steepest economic collapse in U.S. history, an unprecedented, unheard of, annualized uh, plummet of 32.9 percent in the GDP, Donald Trump mused on Twitter about postponing the 2020 election. Trump is getting desperate, writes from more desperate by the day. What might he do? What should he uh, should Americans fear? From goes on to note that earlier this summer, former government officials and academic students of government gathered for over uh, gathered over four sessions of the nonpartisan transition integrity project to analyze those questions. He notes the good news. Uh, is that Trump cannot postpone the election or the next presidential inauguration. He has no means to do either of those things. Those are set in law or by the Constitution. Nor can he somehow cling to power after Inauguration Day if the electoral vote is certified against him. The bad news is that there is a lot of mischief that can be done with the legal boundaries by a determined president, especially with the compliance of the attorney general and enough political allies in the state capitals. The worst news writes from who took part in this uh, transition integrity project exercise is that faced with presidential lawlessness, few of the participants at the TIP project found effective responses. The courts offered only slow, weak, and unreliable remedies. Street protests were difficult to mobilize and often proved counterproductive. Republican elected officials cowered even in the face of the most outrageous Donald Trump acts. And Democratic elected officials lacked the tools and clout to make much difference. Many of the games, he said, turned on who made the first bold move. Time after time, that first mover, at least in these exercises, was Trump. Joining us today is co-founder of the Transition Integrity Project, Dr. Nils Gilman of the Bergruen Institute. Thank you for staying with us, uh, doctor. Greatly appreciated. You found that... um, The side that took action first in almost all of these scenarios ended up having an advantage. That's good to know. But then you note that it was um, the Republicans who held a distinct advantage here, that it was Team Trump 
who tended to take the first move, whereas uh, the folks on the left were more fractious, didn't know how to move. Well, that's depressing. Maybe true, but depressing. That seems like a huge advantage that Trump already has going in, uh, including even already right now with the actions that he's taking before the election. Yeah, well, you know, obviously uh, Trump's general M.O., in my estimation, is that he tries out a lot of things rhetorically and tries out different things as a matter of practice, right? So, you know, he put, he, you know, put out a flyer on potentially postponing the election. He actually got pushback from a bunch of Republicans on that, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, when he put out, you know, efforts to send in, you know, DHS forces to uh, put down protesters in Portland, mm -hmm. he got no pro pushback whatsoever from right. Republican elected officials. So you see, you do see that the Republicans have certain kinds of bright lines that they're not willing to uh, allow the president to cross. But there's a bunch of other things that he's tried um, that, you know, they aren't pushing back on him, right? And so they don't push back on Detroit, excuse me, on, uh, on Portland. And likewise, they haven't pushed back on what he's announced he's doing as he's pulling those you know, federal forces out of Portland. He said he's going to send them to Cleveland, Detroit, and Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. Well, why would he pick those three cities, right? Well, because they're the blue cities in swing states. And it might be really helpful for him to have federal, uh, you know, federal forces on hand, especially if he were to invoke, you know, the Insurrection Act or the emergency powers that are uh, accrued to the president since 1976. Mm -hmm. I mean, so one of the things we really learned here is it's not so much that Trump has to engage in illegal activities is this this exercise really showed the incredible power that has been accrued into the presidency um, really over the last, you know, arguably it's been increasing since the 1860s, but certainly since the Cold War, the president has become, you know, a much more unitary, much more powerful entity. And the only things at this point that really put serious constraints on the presidency, particularly in a moment of crisis, are whatever moral and normative restraints that the person of the president happens to have it. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Then we are in trouble. Uh, what, uh, man, Nils, what surprised you of all of the uh, various scenarios? And again, uh, except for a landslide by uh, by Joe Biden in both the Electoral College and the popular vote, you found that there were looking at a potential constitutional crisis, potentially violence in the streets. What surprised you most throughout the uh, various sessions? I guess you had four different sessions. Was there anything that jumped out that uh, you, you wouldn't have seen uh, coming into these exercises? You know, I'm not sure. Um, I guess I was surprised by just how many tools are available to a normatively uninhibited presidency. I mean, I had mm. some idea about this, you know, but when you saw how many moves there are uh, that you can make, that was a surprise. The other thing that was, um, I guess I'm not sure I was surprised by it, but it was definitely confirmed is that, you know, the presidency is this incredibly powerful entity, right? And if it acts in a really concentrated way, you know, it can do incredible things, right? And those things can be incredibly good or they can be incredibly bad. The nature of the opposition in this country is that it's much more fragmented, right? And that's, that's, that's actually not a partisan point. It's not about Trump or about the Democrats or Republicans. It just has to do with the asymmetric nature of the executive branch, which is, you know, increasingly centralized, powerful, and unitary, versus all the other agencies and the legislative branch and the judiciary and the state and local governments that are just a naturally more fragmented and fractious um, mm -hmm. set of institutions. And so it's much harder to organize them. I guess the third thing that was a bit of a surprise to me is uh, it really became clear 
that political mobilization into the streets is almost certainly going to be decisive, partly because it will enormously drive the way the media covers the story. Mm. If millions and millions of people turn out into the streets and demand political integrity, demand that the process move forward with integrity, with justice, with patience, that will make a huge difference for how the media perceives what's legitimate. Um, now, the problem we're seeing, of course, is that there's already a situation where there's mobilization and counter-mobilization of people on the left, people on the right. You know, we saw just last night some really pretty scary scenes in Portland of, you know, it's not clear who these people are. It's not clear if there's, you know, adjunct provocateurs mm-hmm. or, you know, false flag operations. Those things are going to happen, too. Right? Yep. Yep. And we're not going to know for sure. Like, is the violence that's springing up, is this, you know, organically coming out of these people or is it being intentionally instigated, perhaps by you know, foreign actors. We know that the Russians tried in 2016 to have, you know, a, a Democratic uh, protest group and a Republican protest group meet at the same time, the same place, I believe it was in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Ended up not being able to organize that. But, you know, if people are legitimately trying to turn out in the street to protect their guy and protect the integrity of the process as they see it, there's a potential for very serious political violence in this country. And yet, I think we have an obligation to come and protest peacefully and demand that the process you know, go through to the end with integrity. Well, we have to uh, hit the streets and protest, uh, but your report also finds that it was generally uh, when when and if violence broke out, it was whichever side uh, began the violence ends up paying a, a, a political price. But as you noted, and as we saw in the, uh, the, the George Floyd protests and so forth up in Minneapolis, there were, in fact, right-wing provocateurs out there who were touching off a lot of, you know, what what eventually became riots and fires and looting. So it's a who uh, I mean, it, it, it's a it, it's a very uh, brittle uh, circumstance we could be looking at here, a, a very dangerous circumstance. I got to get to another quick break here. But very uh, quickly, Nils, did the presidential the PADs, the I think the presidential emergency authorization documents, those are sort of those secret presidential powers that. Trump has hinted that he has, and other people uh, have have said that, in fact, he has, that uh, were given to the presidency back uh, during the Eisenhower era, uh, largely to deal with emergencies like nuclear war and so forth. Did the use of those PADs come into your uh, exercise here, or or no, because nobody really knows what they actually are? Well, uh, there were a couple of, there, were, there, there was one uh, of the exercises where uh, the team playing Trump, and I should say, you know, obviously... This is not a prediction. This is just based on the people who were there playing those roles, uh, did try to invoke emergency powers. And then that was contested in the courts. And one of the things we found is the people who were playing the courts, and the Roberts Court in particular, you know, Justice Roberts, I think, is a very strong institutionalist, and they tried throughout his term as Chief Justice to, to the extent possible in these highly polarized times, um, you know, stay out of overtly political activity and to try to stay neutral. Um, and, you know, there's a very large possibility that I think if things go to the Supreme Court, the Roberts Court will do everything they can not to seem like they're putting the fingers on the scale to say this is fundamentally a political issue, that the political echelons and the political branches of government need to sort out who actually won this election. They don't want to get involved. I, I, so, I, 
Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I got to get to a break here, Nils. I'm so sorry. I'm running so late here. A uh, very quick break and we'll come back. Boy, I'm worried if we have to count on uh, Chief Justice John Roberts to save this country, we may be in even more trouble than I fear. Quick break. We're back uh, with uh, Nils Gilman and we'll try to get to a call very quickly. I'm Brad Friedman. And you are listening to the Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. All right, we're going to get uh, straight to the phones. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here, speaking with uh, Dr. Nils Gilman. We've got literally one minute left, so my apologies for that. Let me get to Joshua in Hollywood. Joshua, you got a question for Nils. Well, I was watching uh, this lady, I forget her name, on StopTheCrime.org. Um, she was talking about how in, um, in, the, in Rwanda, they actually use electromagnetic frequency manipulation. Uh, uh, okay, thanks. Thanks, Joshua. Sorry, we got to run. We thought it was a legit question for uh, for Nils Gilman. Nils, I got to let you. I'm sorry, I got to let you go. I told you I had a lot to ask you about. I could talk to you for hours. I hope you might not mind coming back in the future uh, and and talk about more as this moves forward, particularly as things unfold and as we begin to look at a transition that you had initially uh, convened this project to to look at, sir. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me on, Brad. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate it myself. Dr. Nils Gilman, historian, vice president of programs at the Bergruen Institute and co-founder of the Transition Integrity Project. You can find him on the Twitters at Nils underscore Gilman. If you stop by bradblog.com tonight, I will link to the uh, tip report and uh, Nils's uh, recent article on that at the American Interest. Gotta get out, running late as usual. We'll be back again tomorrow. Hope you will join us here. Until then, you can uh, drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. That's it. See you there until we see you here. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Thank you.